BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I'm Ethan Warren. And this is The Great Hunting Caper. The first half of 1968 was marked by worldwide violence and tragedy. In January, North Vietnam launched the Tet Offensive, effectively ending any confidence that the U.S. might somehow prevail in Vietnam. Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered in April, and the murder of Robert Kennedy would follow in June. On May 6th, students rioted in Paris, clashing with police in the streets. And two weeks later, in New York City, a press conference was held at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel to announce the formation of a new organization, the Children's Television Workshop. The group's goal, according to co-founder Joan Gans Cooney, was to create not a slate of shows, but one, quote, a successful television program that would make a difference in the lives of children, end quote. Specifically, according to producer John Stone, the show would target not just children, but disadvantaged children, specifically disadvantaged inner-city children, most specifically black disadvantaged inner-city children. As Stone said, that was the bullseye demographic. Research showed a few things about these children. Between the ages of 3 and 5, they were watching TV approximately 50% of their waking hours, a percentage exceeded only by the amount of time they spent sleeping. Meanwhile, on average, these children entered school three months behind and finished first grade a year behind, a pattern that worsened exponentially. If children were already parked in front of the TV for half their day, then why not create a show that would both appeal to and be good for them? For techniques, the Children's Television Workshop looked to TV advertising. As Joan Gans Cooney said, children, quote, like commercials and banana peel humor and avant-garde video and editing techniques, end quote. This, then, would be the language of the show. It should, Cooney advised, quote, jump and move fast, end quote. In 1968, one of the biggest names in TV advertising was a 32-year-old puppeteer named Jim Henson, who was by then using his popular Muppets to hawk Royal Crown Cola and Southern Bell, while spending his nights bringing the Muppets on talk shows like Ed Sullivan. Dabbling in experimental filmmaking earlier that year, Jim had created an avant-garde documentary, Youth 68, a project directed by John Stone. Now, Stone gave Jim a call and invited him to sit in on some meetings for a project he was helping develop. There were brain trusts being assembled in New York and Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was a meeting of the minds never before attempted, TV producers and educators. Jim should come on down. So Sesame Street comes along at a really pivotal time in Jim Henson's career. 
Um, it comes on at the tail end of the 60s at a time when, again, creatively, he's sort of doing a lot of different things and puppetry and the Muppets are just one of many things he's doing. But Jim really believes in the power of television to do good. And Sesame Street comes along at a time when um, television's been called the vast wasteland and that they don't want kids watching TV. And Joan Gans Cooney and her team are smart enough to realize that TV can do some good. Um, and she understands things that, that, you know, something like Laugh-In. I mean, she's she's really tap, tied in, tapped into the, sort of the magic of Laugh-In, which is very quick cut, get the joke, get out. Um, commercials, she understood the power of commercials, watching kids memorize commercials, how they could, how they just through pure rote from the commercial, they could learn to memorize things. <clears throat> so she's taking a lot of different things she, she knows about TV and combining it with pedagogy. And that's one of the things that's really important about Sesame Street is it's the first time that children's television has had that sort of educator approved stamp on it. Um, you know, Mr. Rogers probably being the exception because Mr. Rogers is doing something a little bit different. But, you know, Romper Room for kids was was basically just a playtime, um, supervised playtime and fun, but it didn't really have a pedagogy. Whereas something like Sesame Street's got a pedagogy behind it. So it wanted to um, give kids Sesame the, one of the driving factors behind Sesame Street was it wanted to give kids the kind of television they deserved. And that was really important to Jim. Um, Jim always said you needed to meet kids right at their level, talk right to them. And that's one of the things he really liked about Sesame Street. Um, I always, I, I think he really loved being part of those meetings that had the Harvard people in it and the Stanford. And he's the guy from the University of Maryland, the state school guy. I think he, he always talked about the eggheads. I think he kind of liked being the, the state school guy who was sitting there representing. By now, the Children's Television Workshop had raised a budget of $8 million, the equivalent of about $70 million today, the bulk of it from the federal government. So they rolled into their developmental meetings with the wind in their sails. Joan Gans Cooney, one of the first female executives in TV history, headed the meetings, and at a certain point she was distracted by the bearded hippie slouching in the corner. Who is he? she asked John Stone. That's Jim Henson, Stone replied. He reminded her of the ads everyone loved so much. Oh, Cooney realized, a puppeteer who specialized in banana peel humor, whose work jumped and moved fast. What a perfect fit. Jim wasn't so sure. Ever since an enlightening tour of Europe a decade earlier, he had been determined that puppetry should play as well for adults as children. The branding of puppets as kids' entertainment was a stigma he had worked diligently to break. Wouldn't making this show be a step in the wrong direction? Then Cooney and Stone sweetened the deal. They needed more than just puppets. They were looking for some experimental short films to run as interstitials, drilling letters and numbers in fun, eye-catching ways. Experimental short films? Now they were speaking Jim's language. And anyway, the more he thought about it, the more he realized. Television is such a huge influence on children. There's family, the church, the school, and then television. And as an industry, we don't generally face up to that responsibility. Jerry Jewell agreed to join the writing staff while Jim got to work sketching new Muppets for Don Celine to bring to life. He drew two faces that looked like a football and a banana, and Ernie and Bert were born, a pair that quickly manifested as an exaggeration of the exasperated affection between Jim and Frank Oz. For Frank, he created Grover, a character Frank conceived as a cross between a monster and an eager dog, and for himself he created the eternally enthusiastic Guy Smiley. Sesame Street's home-based set was an urban neighborhood, one intended to look like what the show's ideal viewer saw when they looked outside. Tests, however, revealed that these street-bound sequences bored children compared to Jim's material, 
so he was called upon once more to create Muppets for the street, and the ensemble of Muppet performers grew. A young puppeteer named Carol Spinney was drafted to operate the cheerful walk-around Muppet Big Bird and the trash-can-bound Grouch Oscar. Soon more performers joined the fold. Fran Brill became the sunshiny Prairie Dawn, Jerry Nelson played lead on the two-man puppet that was Big Bird's invisible friend Snuffleupagus, and Richard Hunt could seemingly play anyone Jim needed him to. The mood was busy and joyous. Following one particularly funny Muppet bit, Jim looked around and asked to be reminded what they were teaching, to which John Stone replied simply, Happiness. When the time came to produce a pitch reel for public broadcasting stations, it was hosted by Kermit, a one-time Sam and Friends ensemble lizard who'd become greener in hue and gained a frill to become a frog, alongside the hound dog Ralph. As Ralph despaired over their inability to think of a name for this new show, Kermit began spitballing. Who's going to find us a title now? Well, uh, what sort of a title are you looking for? Oh, something that says we're going to open up new worlds for these little kids, you know, but not too cute. Oh, what am I going to do, Kermit? Well, uh, uh, where's this show going to take place? On a street, on the front steps of a house. That'll be the main place. What are we going to do for a title? Open up new worlds. Uh, street, uh... Hey, Ralph? Hmm? Why don't you call your show Sesame Street? My entire career as a TV educator nipped in the... What, what was that? Sesame Street. You know, like open sesame? It kind of gives the idea of a street where neat stuff happens. Kermit, why, you're a genius. Mwah. Yuck. Sesame Street. I love it. The kids will love it. I can see it. Up there in lights, the children's television workshop presents Sesame Street. Oh, that's a great title, Kermit. Sunny day, sleeping up. Sesame Street sees Gordon introduce a little girl named Sally to the neighborhood denizens, including his wife Susan, music teacher Bob, shopkeeper Mr. Hooper, and both Big Bird, then a sort of dim bulb with just a few feathers sprouting from his head, and Oscar, then a rusty orange hue. Lessons include multiple segments devoted to the virtues of washing and a languid 10-minute short film on the dairy industry. Things come alive when Jim Henson appears on screen in a loud striped shirt juggling three balls. Three balls, we hear Jim say. Three crocodiles, another man shouts, and three Muppets burst from the wall. To top it all off, we hear Jim sing three birthday cakes, only for a chef holding three cakes to tumble down the stairs. Joan Gans Cooney must have been satisfied with Jim's contributions. Here was TV that jumped and moved fast. I remember watching the first episode of Sesame Street. I went <clears throat> to the, the Paley Center when I moved to New York, and... I was trying to think of what shows do I want to see, and I watched the first episode of Sesame Street. When they introduce Oscar the Grouch, I remember they do this really smart thing, which is like, Oscar hates everything, but there's a little kid who's being introduced to Oscar the Grouch, and Oscar's like, you're okay, 
I don't mind you. And I'm like, that's the way the kids know that it's okay to like Oscar because it makes the viewer, the child who's watching, think, oh, he hates everything, but he would like me. And they do it without undermining um, the character's central game. They do it in a way where it's, it doesn't, cha- it doesn't uh, soften Oscar one bit more than it needs to. Just enough so that you as a kid don't think, oh, Oscar the Grouch would hate me if he met me. It's brilliant. The Children's Television Workshop team lived in fear that their targeted, underprivileged kids wouldn't find the show. So they went full court press promoting the premiere, publicizing at daycares, churches, the YMCA, anywhere they might encounter parents. As a result, Sesame Street hit with a major splash. Jim was photographed for Life magazine, flanked by Bert, Ernie, and Kermit. A review for Utah's Ogden Standard Examiner read, quote, One needn't be an expert on education or even children to know when a production feels right or when it has the clear stamp of know-how as well as having its heart in the right place. This gentle, witty series has the sound and feel of people who know and love children. End quote. So I know this probably sounds a little bit like hyperbole, but I, I legitimately can't think of a television show that's been more influential in my life than than Sesame Street. And not just because it's the first TV show that I ever fell in love with. I, I have distinct memories of watching it when I was two. Um, and when I say influential in my life, I don't mean from like a, from a art perspective. There's probably been, you know, television shows that have influenced my idea of like what cinema is or what comedy is or what, uh, what story structure is. But I, I mean, I truly mean with Sesame Street that like, I can attribute so much of who I am as a person to this day to to watching Sesame Street and really kind of absorbing, you know, in a way that I didn't realize when I was a child, like the values that it was and that it was teaching me. Um, and it's 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 always been very subtle in that in that way. But it was, you know, it was always very intentional from, um, you know, from the, the get go. You know, it was always a very explicitly political show. Um, so, I mean, so much so that wasn't, um, you know, that wasn't accidental. Like um, uh, Sonia uh, uh, Manzano, who played Maria, like noted that her casting specifically was it was a political act. Was them saying that, you know, this this diverse cast of human beings and eventually Muppets that are going to be involved in this, having those on your television station. You know, every every day is going to be political. I didn't know any of that when I started watching that as a kid. But that idea of like, whether it's Maria or Louise or Gordon or Susan or all these people that I looked up to as these kind of like safe adults who were imparting these lessons or, you know, seeing James Taylor or Paul Simon or Jesse Jackson interact with this group of like diverse kids as a kid growing up in very white towns in Montana in North Dakota, you know, that gave me just this idea of, of, of normalcy that I probably wouldn't have gotten outside of, of Sesame Street, that these were all people uh, in a way that probably didn't match a, even my parent, my parents' upbringing. You know, my parents um, started, you know, Sesame Street came out when they were like 14 or 15. And so I think, you know, people who are like in my age group uh, and a little bit older Gen X and elder millennials and on have had this if they were watching Sesame Street and absorbing it the way that that I have, no matter where they were in the world, they probably either, hopefully, you know, if they were, 
you know, seeing television at the time that didn't didn't um, that didn't look like them, they were seeing a lot more inclusion of, of what their skin color or what they who they were as people shown on the screen. But even if you're a you know a white kid growing up in Montana, you get a sense of like, you know, truly that everyone has value, everyone has worth. Uh, I grew up in a uh, very conservative religious household and I was not allowed to watch TV in general. I wasn't really allowed to listen to the radio or um, and I just I had a real craving for culture. I just felt like I was missing out on, you know, I talked to kids my own age. I had no idea what any of them were ever talking about. I felt like such an alien because I had no common reference points uh, with them. But one of the few things I was able to watch sometimes was Sesame Street. It wasn't guaranteed that if I wanted to watch it, I could, but I was excited anytime I could watch Sesame Street. Um, not only because the, the puppets were so magical, you know, I always loved um, my favorite uh, fantasy sort of magical realism stuff growing up with, uh, and still today, it's stuff like Mary Poppins and um, the the Muppets, where uh, you were just there were these things that you knew weren't reality yet they were you could see them and you could touch them. They were very tactile, uh, uh, and that that was uh, that was very special to me. But aside from just loving having the Muppets on screen and and and. Um, all the great uh, the great puppetry going on was that uh, it was my view into culture. Like I grew up in Kansas in the 70s and the 80s, and like I said, it was already in a in a pretty conservative, very um, cloistered uh, growing up. I didn't hear popular songs on the radio or or, or watch TV uh, much, but. When I got to see the Muppets, or specifically when I got to see Sesame Street, I knew I was getting not the straight culture, not not the real deal, but I was getting a view into it. Like I knew they were talking about something that was going on in the world that this was like my only exposure to it. And so I grew up kind of trying to parse what's really going on in the world <laughs> through What's everybody making jokes about? You know, like I, I understood that there was, there were these undercurrents of humor that were maybe going over my head, uh, but I, I could tell there was something like that going on most of the time, and I was just so desperate to find out what's going on in the world. Sesame Street is helping me, uh, helping me understand that. I remember one of the first pop culture jokes I ever got on Sesame Street was. Uh, I think I don't remember if they were called the Letterman or just the Beatles, uh, B E E T L E S, but singing the song Letter B. Um, uh, uh, that you know, I must have heard Let It Be somewhere where I, I'd known the name of the Beatles, but that cracked me up and, and made me feel like I belonged to culture in a way. That uh, that nobody, you know, nothing else really was doing. I could go out and repeat what I'd seen on Sesame Street, and I finally had something to connect, connect to, uh, 
to people my own age over. Um, that was extremely, extremely important to me. I mean, how out of it I was. I remember being in, in first grade. I had no connection to any of my friends. They all had lunchboxes. I had no idea what their lunchboxes meant. So Sesame Street was extremely important for kind of cluing me into what was going on. It looked, it looked like the real world in ways that, uh, you know, that made it so special when the Muppets showed up, when the, there were the puppets in there, because you, you knew they were fantasy objects, but, but the rest of the place looked so, so real. And again, I was, I was living in Kansas. Uh, I didn't know the big city or anything like that, but man, it looked like you could, I thought, that they're probably just filming on the street there. Um, this is, you know, and, and there's this, something that was kind of special, I think, about the, the 70s and the 80s in pop culture, even something like E.T. Uh, the, the domestic scenes, you know, that house was kind of messy and it was, it was maybe a little dim and shabby. And, uh, and I was like, that's like where I live, you know, that's, uh, you know, I those Disney shows that were foisted on my kids. You know, it's always so insanely overlit, and bright, and clean, and antiseptic, and it's like there's absolutely no connection to to any of this. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the the very lived in kind of shabby. Uh, a little broken down, but still functional world of Sesame Street was was pretty important. I remember when I moved to St. Louis when I was 20, someone asking me after I'd been here for a little while, how did I like living in St. Louis after Arkansas and Kansas and things like that? I was, and, and I blurted out without really thinking about it. I said, this is great. It feels like it feels like Sesame Street. And, uh, you know, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it was 25, 26 years ago. I don't, I'm not entirely sure what I meant in the moment, but, but, you know, I think it's pretty easy to extrapolate something like diversity and, um, you know, the urban experience that, uh, I just was not having anywhere else, but that was my first like positive impulse was this is like Sesame street. Uh, I like it. I'm here now and I wouldn't want to go back. I'm not someone who laments, you know, the changes over time. My Sesame street was the Sesame street of the 1970s where, uh, if they, if you saw characters get on the subway, it looked like 1970s New York subway. It, it's, it was the same subway. Like, the Sesame Street that I grew up with was the same. It was set in the same New York City that Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver was a cab driver in. And I liked that. I liked the fact that this was not... Sesame Street was a nice neighborhood. It was not a rich neighborhood. I think that uh, over time, it's sort of gotten cleaned up. And I think they are, are more... Um, they know more about what actually works in terms of, like, teaching kids. Um, it's probably lost some some of the ragged charm that I grew up with, but I'm also not one of those adults who thinks that 
what kids are watching now needs to reflect what I enjoyed when I was a child because I think there are people who know more about what is actually healthy for kids. There are things I like. Some of the things I liked about Sesame Street, probably in hindsight, there are very uh, people who know what they're talking about who would probably say, yeah, it actually isn't very healthy to show a bunch of five-year-olds. Um, but I'm rather than being uh, angry that it's changed, I feel kind of a little bit weirdly grateful that I got to witness the, not the first years, because it was on a few years before I was born, but sort of that, what I, what is, it's almost like Saturday Night Live in the sense of like, everybody has their period where it really meant a lot to them. It's like, that's the best stuff. And it really is just what the age you were when you experienced it. I think by the time when I would see Sesame Street, like a clip of it or something in the nineties, it always was like, oh, this doesn't look like I remember. Like the different adults or the, 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 the way that the, they play with comedy is different. I think that there's also things that uh, uh, my friend J.D. Amato and I have this disagreement about um, latter-day Sesame Street doing parodies of adult things. And as a big fan of Twin Peaks and Sesame Street, I actually think it's like wildly inappropriate to do a Twin Peaks parody on Sesame Street simply because of what Twin Peaks is. It's ultimately about, you know, women who are getting murdered and there's incest and there's all these themes that I think are like, you you wouldn't do a parody of Blue Velvet on Sesame Street, you know what I mean? Or Wild at Heart, you wouldn't be like, there. Uh, there's no other David Lynch thing that you would do a, a parody of. I remember it was, the reason it occurred to me was I remember they did a um, law, it was a Law and Order Special Letters unit uh, on Sesame Street or something like that. And I was like, special letters unit this is specifically parodying the one about you know sexual assault like you can't do this on sesame street i i never think of the muppets on sesame street as puppets you know even though i know technically how it works i always just think of them as like as real as the humans on the show we'll be right back after this quick break Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. He's a happy man. Yeah. Hard to understand. That nasty damn. Between the first and second seasons, they took the show on the road, with performances described as a sort of children's Woodstock. By the second season, the show was being broadcast in 50 countries, but not every American had the privilege of seeing it. Sesame Street was a proudly integrated neighborhood, with the human cast balanced between white, black, and Latinx characters. As a result, Mississippi Public Broadcasting elected not to air the show, though executives would claim the choice was unrelated to integration and simply a matter of preferencing other popular shows. Sure. But the case was closed until a commercial network swooped in and picked up the show, which proved so massively popular with children and parents that the Public Broadcasting Network reversed its decision, and the children of Mississippi were offered the same opportunity as everyone else. 
The Chance to be Taught by Jim Henson and the Children's Television Workshop. It is it is sort of funny when like you see like conservative people on Twitter uh, attack Sesame Street and there, there's this weird reactionary thing from like I think liberals that are like, well, you know you've gone too far if you think Sesame Street is political and you want to go, it is. It, it is absolutely intentionally always has been a a political statement and it was one i was absorbing um you know before i knew i was absorbing it the and and those sort of values have kind of stayed with me yeah sesame street um premiered in november 1969 and i was born in october uh, 1970 so i was right there as a wide-eyed infant toddler uh as sesame street was finding its feet um so was i and um there was uh this sense of a neighborhood and a community in sesame street that appealed to me i grew up in northeast portland in a neighborhood almost a, almost a suburban neighborhood right on the edge of northeast portland and our home was in a neighborhood surrounded by the homes of adults who kind of kept to themselves. Um, there were not children in the neighborhood um, who would become friends of mine until I was a teenager. And so this idea of a neighborhood just bursting with children and with activity and with creativity and with, with friends really appealed to me. And when Gordon or Susan or Maria or Big Bird or Kermit would look into the camera and address the viewer. Um, that felt very, very real. Uh, like I was making a connection with a community. And reading so many children's books um, about kids who had friends in their neighborhood, that that idea of a neighborhood, of a of of diversity, a, a diversity of friendships really began to appeal to me. And I, I think I became aware early on that I wanted that in my life. Um, I wanted that kind of conversation, that way of sort of figuring out who I was by being surrounded by characters who were different. Um, and they don't get much more different than the Muppets. So Sesame Street really, really connected with me. And I, my mother still speaks with amazement about how early I learned to read. And she was a school teacher. She was a a kindergartner, preschool, kindergarten, school teacher, um, depending on the year. And, um, but I have a feeling that she was delighted to see that Sesame Street was having a profound impact on my education as well, that I, I was loving to play with letters. I didn't just want to read them on the page. I wanted to make them. And so I have drawers within reach here in this office full of books and picture, uh, storybooks and pictures and things I I learned to make when I was four and five and six years old, uh, probably because those those singing, dancing letters were running across my screen. Um, so Sesame Street had a lot, a lot to do with that. But I also grew up in a very conservative, um, Christian, primarily Baptist community in Portland, Oregon. We were very involved with church. I attended a private Christian school, kindergarten through college, really, and. Um, uh, while I don't remember, well, I, I guess it's a problem that I don't remember much conversation about race, but it was an overwhelmingly white community. 
I can remember the very rare exceptions. And yet when I watched Sesame Street, um, I mean, that was probably my introduction to Mexican-Americans, to black Americans. Um, and I don't remember being troubled by that. I don't remember even that the discrepancy registered with me. But I think as I started to grow up, I started to realize there's something very different about that neighborhood uh, than the one I'm living in. And it created, it, it cultivated a desire in me to correct that in some way, to find a neighborhood that was more representative of the world I was living, of the world that Sesame Street was showing. I don't remember life without Sesame Street, you know, because it was created before I was born and was like basically an institution by the time I was a kid watching PBS. Um, I can't, I honestly, I can't remember anything other than like Big Bird and like life before Big Bird and um, Snuffleupagus, I think was always my favorite because he's like really big and awkward. And I always felt very awkward. So I appreciated that, even though I'm very tiny. Um, obviously Oscar the Grouch is like every rebellious kid's favorite character. Um, I think he, he, let, he let kids think that rage was, or grumpiness, you know, not necessarily rage, but sometimes rage. Grumpiness was like, okay occasionally you know because it's just a human emotion um so i guess what i really loved about sesame street looking back on it i did not realize this obviously as a kid because when you're a kid you don't know what you're processing most of the time um but looking back on it i think sesame street did a really great job of fostering um uh, kids feeling okay in a bunch of different emotions similar to mr rogers in that and obviously they were both on pbs but um just letting you know that it's okay to sometimes be sad. So it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be a mess. It's okay to be really, really excited about things. Like Big Bird's always so excited. Um, and so it's a really comforting show to watch when you're a kid and you get the puppets that are, you know, clearly fake, but also they feel like they could be your friends. Um, I think I had a Sesame Street puppet or a Sesame Street knockoff puppet when I was a kid that was purple and his name, I called him Harry, but I don't actually know if he was from Sesame Street or like a knockoff that my parents bought me or that my babysitter gave me. I'm not really sure. But um, I, I guess I just think Sesame Street is just one of those perfect, perfect shows. It also, I, I didn't know this when I was watching it, but it also um, was incredibly diverse. I didn't know any of that history about how they specifically developed it to to really show what a New York, a diverse New York street would really look like. Um, but I think a, being a, a kid that grew up in a very not diverse town, watching something that like my hometown is like 95% white or something like that, 85%. Um, Watching something like Sesame Street was really a great way to uh, understand that, like, my hometown was not the norm. My hometown is not reflective of what the United States looked like. Um, without hitting you over the head with it, it's just there. Uh, and I think that kind of stuff is really important. And I, I think the creators knowing that, one, kids that look like the kids on Sesame Street needed that representation. But two, kids like me would grow up knowing, you know, maybe being less centered on on how white our hometowns are um so just, i think it's just a really just a really important show and really well done and uh i learned 
to count from this show. I learned colors, you know, I learned pretty much everything watching Sesame Street. I can't can't think of a subject other than like hard science that I didn't get my initial uh, love of it from Sesame Street. The, the, the funniest thing about Sesame Street, uh, because I mean, th that part's important, but also like my, my pro I mean, a lot of my sense of comedy probably comes from that. You know, there was very explicitly satirical and parody before I knew who Mel Brooks was or, uh, you know, any of those, uh, the Naked Gun or Airplane. I was watching Monsterpiece Theater and these, these parodies of things I didn't even know were parodies at the time. You know, I, even before I had kids, which I have three now um i remember they released some of those like classic sesame street dvd sets and i i i like in my 20s and i it was like i one of the first things i think i bought off of amazon like i'm like i need to have these and i would watch and i would laugh and you know it even even at the time when sesame street first came out it became this thing that i think was very popular in colleges and among adults too because in the same way like a Peewee's Playhouse or a SpongeBob SquarePants became with adults too, because it had this style of of humor that was so zany and bizarre and funny. And going back and watching those sets, even you know recently in, in preparation for this, and it's like, man, you know, when you watch like the Bert and Ernie stuff, and it's just Frank Oz and Jim Henson kind of riffing off each other and doing these things, like it's legitimately hilarious anyone that you interview for the show is going to have different segments that have have either stayed with them or as they've done like you know reviewed some of the older stuff has been like oh my god this was such, like it's a keystone moment in my childhood of seeing this and thinking about the world just a little bit differently uh differently from here on out i think even segments that are really well known like uh like the mr hooper death um scene right i saw that as a kid i saw that after it actually aired like in reruns because i think i was born in 1983 and uh and mr hooper died in, in 1982 and but i still remember watching it when i was like four or five and um i showed it to my kids recently because even i remember my parents when i was raised in a very religious household and they they were kind of critical of it they were like oh they should have told big bird that Mr. Hooper was in heaven. Like, that would have been the easy way to explain it to, to Big Birds, that Mr. Hooper has died, and now he's in a better place, and, and that's where we want to go. And I, not to, not, even though I'm not religious today, I, like, I understand that that is the easy way to explain to kids death. And what's so, like, brilliant about the show and why I felt so comfortable showing it to my, to my kids is, is, you know, they, they spent a lot of time, um, trying to understand of like if you're a kid and someone dies and you're that you're six years old which is like big birds supposed to be what do you need to know that you might not know otherwise big bird when, when people die they don't come back ever no never why not well big bird they're dead they they can't come back well, she's gonna come back. Why, who's gonna take care of the store? And who's gonna make my birds eat milkshakes and, and tell me stories? Big Bird. Uh, I'm gonna take care of the store. Mr. Hooper, he left it to me. 
and I'll make you your milkshakes, and, and we'll all tell you stories, and sure. we'll make sure you're okay. Sure, we'll look after you. Oh, well, you won't be the same. You're right, Pink Bird. It's, it's, it'll never be the same around here without him. Mm. But you know something? We can all be very happy that we had a chance to be with him and, and to know him yeah. and to love him a lot when he was here. Yeah. And Big Bird, we still have our memories of him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, our memories. Right. My memories, that's how I drew this picture. Yeah, from memory. Good. Yeah. yeah. And, and we can remember him and remember him and remember him. Much as we want to. But I don't like it. It makes me sad. We all feel sad, Big Bird. He's never coming back. Never? No. Well, I don't understand. You know, everything was just fine. Why does it have to be this way? Give me one good reason. Big Bird. It has to be this way because. Just because? Just because. Oh. It's, it's, it's a brutal scene to watch, but you just recognize, like, they were never afraid to talk to kids in the way that they needed to be talked to and never took the easy way out of, of hard or challenging conversations but also this this thing that would be a like career and art defining moment in so many other people's lives is just a part of the conversation when you talk about this guy that's both a testament to a certain kind of ability to make art that is maybe more difficult to access nowadays but also to his his dedication to doing that that a certain way and I don't know, I feel like Sesame Street was the first time, even as a younger person, I became aware of what the like apparatus of the Muppet looked like and like what it must mean to, you see like pictures of them doing Bert and Ernie and those sets on stilts. And you realize in order to do these things, these people had to stand really close to one another and touch one another and watch one another while like sending something up into the air it's true so it must be a, must have been a very intimate relationship between jim and frank yeah smells even yeah yeah well knowing how each other's bodies move man mm -hmm. who was was it i think it was richard hunt who said like he figured out the key was the, the belt loop oh right yeah latching yourself onto your partner's belt loop so that when they moved you weren't anticipating you were actually sort of puppeted by them in a way all right so you and i just watched an episode of sesame street from season seven which aired in 1976 10 years before i was born when your grandfather was 20 um can you tell me what the episode was about it was about lots of different things fair enough do you remember watching sesame street when you were younger not really. 
No, so you can't tell me whether this episode felt any different from the ones they make now? Well, it did feel a little bit different, but that was because there was like some little scratches. Yeah, you could see that this was an old tape that had been uploaded to uh, HBO for us. Do you like how fast it moves? Mm, I'm fine with it. You're fine with it? Because when they started it, they were really like, this is this is how kids like to learn. Do you feel like this is how kids like to learn with like fast, fast, fast stuff? Yes, because then we get the breaks. Oh, you get little breaks in between? Yeah. Um, do you remember anything that this one taught about? It taught about how to count by counting to number five. What were the letters that you learned? G and K. Do you remember any ways that they taught you G and K? Um, they had songs and the gorilla. The gorilla to teach you the letter G, right? Yeah. Um, did you miss the Muppets at all when they weren't around? Not really. It was all good? Even the stuff that was just the humans? Yeah. Um, oh, you you mentioned um, that since Elmo came along, you don't see so much Grover on Sesame Street stuff anymore, right? Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right about that. Elmo kind of phased out Grover. So who's better, Elmo or Grover? Grover, because he's so silly. I like to hear you say that because I kind of agree with you. Um, do you think about the puppeteer when you're watching a Muppet move? No, except with the Muppets because you like see the strings of them. Oh, you see the wires attached to their hands. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I noticed there was one part that lost you, and you turned around from the TV and started talking to me. Do you remember which part that was? No. It was the long, long discussion of what it's like to be a cow, I think, in the wintertime. It lost me a little bit, too. That one really went on. Mm-hmm. Do you remember any single little bit in particular that you thought was particularly good that you can tell people about? The gorilla. What did you like about the gorilla? Well... I like the ending when he said, well, then I'm out of here. I have to learn how to eat bananas and run around in the jungle. Right. The gorilla didn't know that he was a gorilla and had to learn to be a gorilla. It's, you know what? It's silly stuff. Yeah. I, I will tell you, as someone who's watched basically every episode of the last six seasons, because my one-year-old is the only show that he watches. So I've watched a lot of the recent episodes. And one thing I've realized very quickly is that it is it is still the best show for kids on TV. Like, it is true that it, it is not as bizarre and creative. It has more of a formula. But all of those things about, like, the way it teaches lessons to kids, the way, it, whether it's about educational purposes of, or who they are as people and the world that they exist in, or whether it's kind of the still very funny, comedic, humorous, stuff or, or a lot of creative segments or or catchy and original songs i mean that stuff is all still there it is still as someone who's watched more programs aimed at kids obviously with with three kids ranging from one to nine in the last nine years i can say unequivocally there is not a better children's show to this day 52 53 years later um uh, than sesame street but one more thing that was really fundamental about the importance of uh, Sesame Street for me as a kid. Like I say, I grew up in a very churched culture. Um, I was not just made to go there. I was enthusiastic about the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus prioritize the poor, 
prioritize um, reaching out to those who um, are, as the scriptures say, the least of these. And not just reaching out to them, but becoming one of them. Deliberately living in a kind of poverty that helps you discover things that are more important and more valuable than, than money. Sesame Street was founded as an entertainment and an educational program to reach not just poor kids, but specifically inner city black children. And I didn't know that as a kid, but there was an overlap there that showed me that there were some things about the, the culture I was growing up in that were relevant to the world beyond the bubble I was living in. And eventually that would create a cultural tension for me. I wanted to live in the world, believing these things and carrying out these, these missions and, and loving my neighbors, rather than talking a lot about that, but then withdrawing from the world in fear. And Sesame Street showed me that, if you will, the kingdom of God is out there. <laughs> Um, it's 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 happening out there. It's not a place to withdraw from the world in in fear and, and build for yourself. It's in engagement with your neighbors and loving your neighbors. And so Sesame Street um, showed me a bigger kind of faith, a more generous kind of faith than I saw modeled in a lot of the communities around me as a kid. Jim and the Muppets were the natural choice to be the public face of Sesame Street but he chafed at the attention. He didn't want to be known as simply a children's puppeteer or a puppeteer in general. He still envisioned a wide range of projects for himself. But as the 60s gave way to the 70s, Jim bowed to public pressure and put aside everything but the Muppets. It was what the audience wanted, and so I felt I should be putting my time and energy into that. The Muppets have always had a life of their own. The entity called the Muppets is something that I don't dictate at all. The audience doesn't dictate it either. It has a natural flow of life that one goes with. In 1971, Jim got a call from Nancy Sinatra. She was mounting a new show in Las Vegas, and she thought some Muppets would be a perfect addition. Jim, Jerry, and Frank headed to the Strip, developing the Boss Men, 12-foot creatures that looked to be made of massive pipe cleaners, and bringing along Menomina, a recent addition to the Muppets stable who'd been well-received on The Ed Sullivan Show, lip-syncing to a song from an X-rated Swedish documentary. Even as he worked with a pop singer, though, reporters asked about Sesame Street until Jim got testy with one Vegas journalist. We have always worked in the realm of adults. Maybe that's why we are here. Descending into despair, Jim called Joan Gans Cooney. You've ruined my life. Why did you have to be so successful? Cooney talked Jim through his sorrows. As she said later, quote, I recognized he was someone who resisted entrapment and would want to fly away if caged. I said to him, you are going to break out of this. Something is going to happen that will provide new opportunities for you. You need to have the patience and belief. Maybe this was the conversation that inspired Jim to revive an old concept, one he had first started sketching out in the late 60s. As he had written then, The time is right for a variety show hosted by dogs, frogs, and monsters. Did you get any cultural currency out of being, like, doing Muppet voices and things like that at parties? Was that, uh, like, some pe some kids did impressions of, of comedians or movie stars or something like that, but I could uh, I could talk like Muppets sometimes, and that was that was some, one of the only things I could do. 
Hi-ho, Kermit the Frog here with the Sesame Street News Report. I'm standing outside the house of the little old lady who lived in a shoe. And so here she comes down. Maybe we can get a word. Excuse me. Excuse me, little old lady. Are you the little old lady who lived in a shoe? I just look like a shoe to you, honey. It's got a high back and a hard heel. Oh, yes, yes, I see. This is definitely not a shoe. This is a boot. That's right. I'm the little old lady who lived in a boot. Uh, that, that was usually good to... And then I didn't have to say anything else the rest of the night. I was cool. On the next episode... It's time to play the music, it's time to light the lights, it's time to get things started on the Great Henson Caper. Every morning, every day, every evening, calling me away. We're almost there, come on. Every morning. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.